Hello, everyone, and welcome back after a long time to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp, and I am thrilled to be back and delving in, here we go, to the entire canon of William Shakespeare over the next X number of months, years, etc. I am joined today by a wonderful group of people from all over. So we're going to go around and um, if you could just say your name, where you are, and your relationship to the play, if, if you do have one, or if this is a, a brand new encounter. Um, so Meg, let's start with you. I'm Meg Hockman. I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And um, this play is so interesting for me because it's a period of time where you have uh, King John, Queen Eleanor, Queen Eleanor, one of the greatest women in history, in English history. Um, and here we get this little view into a reality hundreds and hundreds of years ago. I think there's some inconsistencies between the historical and what Shakespeare has given us. And so that's really interesting. And I know we'll discuss that. Wonderful. Thank you, Meg. Danny. So hello everyone, I'm Danny Reddick and I will be reading Constance in later acts. Wonderful. See you later. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Patrick. Uh, hi everyone. Uh, my name's Patrick Harvey. I'm going to be reading King John. Um, this is uh, my first exposure to this play. The first time I read it was in preparation for this recording. So I'm really, really excited. It's it's one of, uh, it's one of the. F I I, I like I like to think that I know as much as I can about Shakespeare, and um, I can't say that if I haven't read all the plays. So I'm I'm on my way after reading this one. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm to tell you how many I have left. <laughs> It'll be our secret. Um, <laughs> Julia. Hello, uh, my name is Julia Larson. I'm in Brooklyn, New York, uh, and this. I think I read King John in, in undergrad. Um, and then I know I read it again because I feel like it's been very in the zeitgeist of late. It's been very, uh, uh, I've had a lot of friends with a lot of different opinions on it. So I remember reading it a couple years back just, just to, to get in the know. And I'm happy to be uh, looking at it again with such lovely people. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, Rafe. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Rafe Terizzi. Uh, I'm in Brooklyn as well. Hello, Brooklyn. Uh, I, this is my first exposure to the play as well. I've loved Shakespeare. I've loved working with you, Ariana, as well. But this is my first time at this particular show. Wonderful. Thanks. Olivia. Hello. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Olivia. Uh, I am in New York City. I'm in Manhattan. Um, what is my relationship with this play? I feel like... Uh, I saw a hilarious production of this like under a bridge somewhere in London in like 2013 <laughs> or something like that. And I feel like I go through waves with this one of like, it hits me really hard and then other waves where I'm like, this is eluding me completely. And I think maybe those also depend for me on maybe the socio-political environment I happened to be in at the time and what we all happened to be in at the time. Um, so I'm very excited to be here with all of you guys and go through it and see what we see. I'm, I'm stoked. Wonderful. 
uh, Liam. Hi, um, I'm Liam Mitchell. Uh, I'm from Santa Fe, uh, and uh, and this is yeah, kind of my first experience delving actually into King John. I don't have a whole lot of experience with it. I remember watching a a, a little workshop that I already directed a while ago, which which had some scenes from this. Uh, the, that's my introduction to Arthur, which I'll be playing today. And yeah, very excited. Thank you, Liam. Sam. Uh, hi everyone, my name's Sam. Uh, I'm also in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, yes, this, this play, I uh, have been fascinated by it for a while. I think I, I'm like one of these people who just for some reason feels compelled to uh, read and actually even stage as a director every single play that Shakespeare ever wrote, uh, hopefully before I die. So I'm, I'm thinking hopefully that'll enrich me as a human being uh, just before I pass away, I get that last one done. Um, but this one's a funny one. I've only, I've read it a couple times and I saw one production of it, which uh, I'm not gonna name where it happened because all I can say is I, it was not good, but um, <laughs> it was done in a Game of Thrones style, but that just meant like Halloween costumes from Spirit Halloween store or something. And, big fake plastic swords and bad acting. But uh, nevertheless, um, I have to say, I find it really fascinating. It's called, it's categorized as a history, but I find it, you know, and it is obviously one, but it seems so different in tone to me than a lot of his other histories. So really excited to delve into it with all of you. And thanks Ariana for having me here. Thank you, Sam. Uh, Bronwyn. Hi, I'm Bronwyn. Um, I am, uh, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and um, I uh, actually saw a King John for the first time um, recently, uh, just when I was leaving Stratford upon Avon, so at the RSC, and they did a production that it will always be like on the top list of things I've seen in my life. Um, they like made King John a woman, but they didn't change any pronouns, and they just like went for it with all this, I just like, it was in the 60s and it was just like full of dance. Like it was funny and it was amazing. Um, and I highly recommend like looking that up like at any point because it's just so good. Um, so I'm so excited <laughs> and the Cardinal was like a badass and uh, I will not be remotely anywhere nearly that, but I am excited. So that's that. <laughs> Thank you, Bronwyn. Um, and Marty. Oh, hello. I am playing King John Falstaff. No, I'm just um, here for the uh, to watch the rehearsal. And um, I have seen, uh, we did scenes from this play in college and it, uh, some of the, the language and imagery really just struck me as beautiful. So I wanted to learn more about it. and and performance, so I'm excited to sit back and watch it unfold. Thanks. Wonderful, and you can uh, catch Marty. He's going to be playing Falstaff in King Henry IV Part Two um, in our later broadcast. Um, Britt. Hi, hello. Um, hi, I'm in New Orleans. Um, I did this show with Ariana. Um, it was our final show in school, so I played Blanche, Lady Falconridge, and about 11 other people. 
Um, <laughs> I really love this play. I, I enjoyed my time doing it, and I'm just excited to hear other people read it and experience it again or for the first time. So, yeah, I'm not in it. I'm just listening. <laughs> and you will catch Brittany in King Henry the Fourth, Part One uh, later on. Um, Bill. Uh, my name is Bill Potter. I'm not in this uh, production. I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico. In terms of a relation to the play, um, I'm a retired college English teacher and I've taught a lot of Shakespeare plays, but I'm very uh, ignorant of a lot of his early histories. I know that basically Shakespeare created the miniseries with these histories that was kind of, um, you know, establishing the history and all that. But I'm very excited just to be able to listen to you guys read and pick up a lot as you do so. Thank you so much, Bill. And you can catch Bill. He will be playing John of Gaunt in Richard II. Um, and so I just wanted to briefly say my relationship with this play. Um, as, as Brittany said, we, uh, were, we went to Lambda together and our final show was King John. And I played Constance and Pembroke um, in that production, which was, um, I, I, I love this play as well. It was a, it was an interesting production. Um, and I think we had some, some interesting interactions with our director who I, I still to this day can't understand if he hated us or hated the play or. Well, if you're going to go there, he got way too much enjoyment out of hearing us sing God save the King. Yes. Yes, we did. We had whole hour long rehearsals where we would just sing God save the King. And it did seem to make him very happy. So there is that, but I, um, I, I love this play. I think there's a reason I, I chose this play to sort of launch this series. Um, I, I would like to say that we are recording this on November 4th. Fourth is it the fourth today? Um, and the president, the uh, presidential election has not been decided at the time that we has not definitively been decided. And something uh, about this play about how liquid the allegiances are and how quickly political expediency sort of changes people's mind, and then they try and back it up with these like in the name of faith. Um, and so I, I see this play um, as like a very, very cynical uh, look at politics. And um, I almost see it's like a borderline satire of politics and the way that people justify the horrible things that they do, um, which I think could be said about a lot of the history plays. Uh, and then the other thing I, I, I wanted to say, I, I just love the history plays in general. I think they're very underrated um, in the Shakespeare canon, although I think they're becoming more and more, um, they're, they're having more and more of a sort of punch and people are going to see them uh, more frequently. And I think above all, what they really boil down to is their family dramas. You know, they're about family relationships and how complicated and hard those can be. Um, and in that, I think, I think they, they, they benefit some, some repolishing and just, and just looking into. Yeah. And at the beginning, I also just wanted to throw out the idea, which I think we'll see in almost all the history plays as we go through them of mercury, of mercurial figures. Um, it's an image that gets repeated a lot in the history plays. Um, 
it's referred to many different characters. The bastard at one point, King John calls, be, be thou as you know, light as Mercury. Um, in Henry IV, part one, we have the sort of classic, Hal is Mercury, Hotspur is Mars. They're literally called that within a speech of each other. And there's a, there's a lot of um, the, the changeability and the sort of not steady ground that anyone stands on I think is, is a fascinating thing to delve into. And also, as we'll see in this first act, first scene, it's all about land and property. And I would love to see like a super, super awesome Marxist take on this entire play and how family and property become equated and then bartered. Um, so without further ado, I would love to just delve right into the text um, so let us begin. Um, also, there, there, is a, a, there are a whole bunch, there's a lot of names, and um, I've tried to go through with uh, <laughs> my partner who speaks like every language that is based in Latin. So I've tried to go through and all the French names, get him to sort of like, is this right? And he's like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> so I'm going to go with yeah, kind of for, for most of these. Um, if anyone at any point during this sort of ha has any questions about the text, has any question about how to pronounce a word, um, I'm just going to carry over something we do for the ISC um, when we do our, our book work, which is essentially just to go beep at the end of someone's line, and then we'll sort of go back and dissect it. And please feel free, those of you reading, to do that, and those of you listening as well, if something is sort of like, what does that mean? Let's pause and let's unpick that big Gordian knot. Okay, without further ado, King John, Act One, Scene One. Now say, Chatillon, what would France with us? Thus, after greeting, speaks the King of France in my behavior to the Majesty, the borrowed Majesty of England here. A strange beginning, borrowed Majesty. Silence, good mother. Hear the embassy. Philip of France, in right and true behalf of thy deceased brother Geoffrey's son, Arthur Plantagenet, lays most lawful claim to this fair island and the territories to Ireland, Poitiers, Anjou, Terrain, Maine, desiring thee to lay aside the sword which sways usurpingly these several titles and put the same into young Arthur's hand, thy nephew, and right royal sovereign. I'm going to say what? beep. Um, are we all clear so far um, about about there's so many sort of hereditary things going on and yeah and and a lot about land as does that does anyone have any questions are we totally clear so far the the reading that you sent us was incredibly helpful oh good <laughs> and one okay. one question i had actually was is it is plantagenet is that good pronunciation absolutely. On that? absolutely yeah. yeah i kind of researched that but i wasn't 100 percent sure yeah I love that book. I, I always want to put out, uh, anytime you're working on the history plays, it is a wonderful resource. Uh, it's an older book by uh, Peter Sacchio, or Sacchio, I've heard both pronunciations, um, called Shakespeare's English Kings. Shakespeare's English Kings is like very, um, very helpful. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. The, I, I think borrowed majesty is such an interesting phrase, right? Um, Oh, yeah. 
it's, it's something that we're going to see in all the history plays of this, this temporary state of majesty being passed from, from one person to another. It's and, shocking how quickly this just jumps right into it, too. Oh, right in the middle of this conversation. Absolutely. It's like, I guess we're getting into it right now. Great. Yeah. <laughs> there's no preamble, right? It's yeah. like there's no previously on King John. It's just yeah. like, okay, here we go. Let's let's uh, let's break this down. Um, um, I, Ariana? I love, yes. Oh, please. Oh, I'm sorry to uh, burst in. Uh, for one thing, I actually just read that Shakespeare's King's book uh, like three months ago. Oh, cool. And it was, it was like kind of fun to read, but it, it like went in one eye and out the other one completely. <laughs> I can't remember like a darn thing. And part of that, I think, was just because the guy was not very, he wasn't very clear in like how he laid out the information. But um, I also, I just wanted to pop in because I know you sent this out in the material, but could I just have a quick refresher in like, who exactly are the Plantagenets? Because when Absolutely. I hear the word, I always just think Yorks and Lancasters. And I think about Henry's, once we get into those Henry guys and the Henry VI plays moving forward or Henry IV moving forward chronologically. So like, can you just give us the exact when the Plantagenets start and then when they end? Absolutely. So I, I can't actually give you an exact date because that is not something that I, I know. This, this dynasty of the Plantagenets includes both the Yorks and the Lancasters from what I understand. They're all coming from um, the Eleanor, Queen Eleanor's um, husband who was Henry II and had a, 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 a lot of kids. Um, we, we only meet... Uh, one of them in this play, King John. But um, essentially, they sat on the throne. There's a lot of um, complicated connections with the French nobility. They became very intertwined during this point. Um, England had a much larger territory uh, than they currently <laughs> do as the United Kingdom. They had huge, huge parts of what is now France. Um, were completely under their control, uh, both northern and then um, because of Eleanor of Aquitaine, southern France was also um, under their control. Now, there was still a king of France as well, but his power was, it was a less centralized role, I think, than, um, than we think of the, the monarchy. And something that is very anachronistic about this play is that Constance sort of sees John is a usurper because he's violated this law of primogeniture, right? Which is where the oldest son becomes king. And if he dies, the son's son, the oldest son's sons becomes king. So for the purposes of this play, the three most important Plantagenets were uh, Richard Coeur de Leon, right? Who is an older brother of John, Geoffrey, who was also an older brother of John, and then John, who was the youngest son. So Geoffrey was older than he, uh, than John, and had a son. So by the law of primogeniture, Arthur, the son, should be king before John. However, 
that was not a set in stone rule at this point in history. That didn't come about until much, much, much later, like hundreds of years later. So there a wasn't really type of agreement at this point. Yes, exactly. And, and a political agreement um, that, you know, in uh, the English King's book, he sort of talks about how there was kind of a choice. Okay. Do we go with Arthur? Do we go with John? And, you know, history sort of tells us that Eleanor, who was much more powerful force in the kingdom than um, anyone sort of was like, well, I can probably still become the, be the queen mother if we go with John. And then I don't want to have Constance be the queen mother and usurp my place if we go with Arthur. And also I, I have more control over, over John and therefore over the kingdom. Um, and that's the other thing. I, I did a whole show on this, Dames of Thrones, the women of Shakespeare's histories. But um, the, the women in the history plays wield an awful lot of power. Um, they always lose it in the end, um, which is a theme that it, I'm looking forward to exploring. Um, but they have these brief, incredible spurts of fiery passion and power um, that they wield throughout the plays. So kind of all of the English royalty that we talk about in, uh, in this play they're all Plantagenets, which is why, as we see, when the bastard gets named Richard Plantagenet, um, he becomes a part of the royal family, even though he's um, illegitimate. Uh, something that he pointed out, which is just sort of fun character background, is that another character in this play, the Earl of Salisbury, who's seen as one of the, the you know, the gentry, the nobility, um, he was actually an illegitimate son so he was he was the half-brother of king john which is something that's not touched upon at all um in the play but so all of these um all of the the claims and the who has what power kind of bounces around based on who's there to back up whose power, you know. So if the nobles flock to John, John has the power. If they flock to Arthur, Arthur has the power. So in that way, these kings who did wield a lot of power and kill a lot of people did still have to make appeals to the rest of the ruling class. Um, almost kind of like the Senate and the House. Mm -hmm. a bit. I don't know. Sorry. It's just I've been watching maps for the last 24 hours. It's all getting a bit confuzzled. Um, that's, I'm sorry, that's a very roundabout way of going about it. But for our purposes, all the royalty in this play are Plantagenet, are part of the Plantagenet right. family line. <laughs> I think it's always like so clear to me that the Plantagenet, the whole mess of them ends with the Tudors. And at the end of Richard III, when Henry Tudor kills that guy. But well, uh, yeah, it's, it's always for me, I'm like, where, where did it begin? Like, how did yeah. the time, where exactly in the history did it? And you know what, I'm going to write that down because I do recall at one point he says where exactly it began. Also to say that they were not called the Plantagenets during King John's time. That is a label that history put back upon them. So that, that, is, that is something else. Another sort of anachronism that we're already um, getting into. I have a question. I also wanted to just bring up that Arthur was what? Uh, supposedly at this moment, age 12. And, and John was what? How old was he? He was like in his, he was 20s. In his 20s. 
I think in his, yeah, in his late 20s, early 30s, I think yeah. when he became so, king. So there's a, 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 a much stronger uh, personage, uh, you know, competing. Absolutely. So, and we'll see the, the problem with putting children on the throne right. <laughs> in a lot of other subsequent, um, <laughs> it usually ends with civil war. Right. So, well, um, well, Philip of France is coming as, you know, the surrogate is presenting him. So there's already, that's a whole difficult situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's incredible how, how quickly there, people turn, turn coats, as, as it were. Wonderful. And I also just the uh, text geek in me was, was really pleased that all of you hit your sort of initial trochies. Um, with some of those lines. So the silence, good mother and Philip of France and Arthur Plantagenet. Thank you for that. My, my inner rhythmic nerd is, is very happy. <laughs> yeah, I, I had to struggle against the desire to say silence, good mother. <laughs> I figured, I figured it's, it's a tough, it's a tough sell. Um, wonderful. And then just to say again, to see how much territory uh, England's owned uh, had control over at this time i mean that's pretty much all of all of those the poitiers anjou touraine maine is basically all of northwest france like that entire area so he's basically like so he owns he should be the king of england ireland and all of northwest france um all of ireland not just six counties Sorry. not just six counties for, for those of you who are watching i'm i'm very irish <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um, let us uh, continue. What follows if we disallow of this? The proud control of fierce and bloody war to enforce these rights so forcibly withheld. Hmm. Here have we war for war and blood for blood. Controlment for controlment. So answer, France. Then take my king's defiance from my mouth the farthest limit of my embassy. Bear mine to him, and so depart in peace. Be thou as lightning in the eyes of France, for ere thou canst report, I will be there. The thunder of my cannon shall be heard. So hence, be thou the trumpet of our wrath and sullen presage of your own decay. An honorable conduct let him have. Pembroke, look to it. Farewell, Chatillon. What now, my son? Have I not ever said how that ambitious Constance would not cease till she had kindled France and all the world upon the right and party of her son? This might have been prevented and made whole with very easy arguments of love, which now the manage of two kingdoms must with fearful bloody issue arbitrate. Our strong possession and our right for us. Your strong possession much more than your right or else it must go wrong with you and me. So much my conscience whispers in your ear, which none but heaven and you and I shall hear. Oh, wonderful. I'm gonna just pause there because I just wanna give a little space to talk about this incredible mother-son relationship that we just yeah. witnessed. Um, I think that Queen Eleanor is like just the political realist. She's like, no, 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 no. You've just gotta <laughs> possess it it's much more strong than actually your claim to the throne. Like she's <laughs> under no illusions about, about the illegitimacy yeah. or legitimacy of the reign. 
Yeah, um, she's like, all you, all you got is that you're bigger than this 12-year-old kid. <laughs> Sorry, fam. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I, I also just wanted to, um, to point out, I, I, I think about this sort of play starting off with a bang, that after um, Chatillon's speech, that's got to be, you know, it's always, I always think as a director that it's always so much more interesting if people are finding out this news for the first time, right, when we, when we hear it. So if this is the first inclination that the English court has that France is making this move, that's really exciting for the beginning of, if, if everyone's sort of going, wait, what? Wait, France, what? They're claiming the, the kingdom? Oh my gosh, you know, so that um, there's, there's definitely a, <laughs> a call for some rhubarb, rhubarb, uh, silent chatter in the background of the court if we were to be staging this. Um, also, it's, it's interesting to me in the folio that everyone exits um, at this point, except for Eleanor and John. So this is really just a moment alone. And I just wonder if, if either of you noticed any difference between the way that they talk when other people are there and the way that they talk when it's just the two of them. Definitely. I think I was just sort of mostly struck by like the basically the first thing she says after this kind of like like you, this like bombshell basically um is like such a personal thing which is uh that like Constance's ambition is what's fueling this and this sort of like weird like competitive matriarchal like thing that must be so weird to what like I'm imagining sort of seeing it since I've never seen the play of you have this king standing in a throne and his like older mother kind of just like sitting there and then when everyone goes away she's just sort of like oh sorry this is happening it's really just that my old spat with his mom is what's bringing <laughs> this on it's such a sort of weird it's such a weird power play it's such a wonderful that's such a great point there's such a sort of mother-in-law like Mm -hmm. kind of tension classic tension in that in that in their relationship as we'll see in act two that's really uh fascinating um i also think it's just to to look at her she as i said before i think she's such a political realist but there there's also a sense that um she is i think trying to prevent war with this mm -hmm. which is another thing that we will will <laughs> see with the women throughout the history plays um, is they are frequently saying, hang on, let's slow down. We can use words here and try and fix this. Um, and then of course, sometimes they, they go, actually, no, let's just kill a bitch. <laughs> you know, like, they, they, they can definitely swing to, to that, that side of the spectrum. I, I just, I think that um, this relationship and this dynamic is one that is like, sometimes forgotten and underplayed because she's not a huge, huge role that mm. there is, but they're the arc that this takes. And I think the, um, how, how King John takes this character for granted as well, uh, later is really, really important. Um, and I'm not gonna like try and ruin anything. <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers. That's a wonderful point, Bronwyn. That's something to think about. Certainly, a child, and she's kind of watching over him. Doesn't necessarily trust that he will make the right call for the mm. nation. And so, um, I think that later, when things fall out, it is very, very interesting. I think it's a one to watch for sure. Yes, <laughs> keep an eye on that 
John Eleanor relationship <laughs> for sure. But also the like the language there, going back to your question earlier, which I didn't really <laughs> address about like the sort of establishing of their relationship too, is like my conscience whispers in your ear, which none but heaven you and I shall hear. It's it's so intimate and so conspiratorial, you know? And it's sort of like it's it's such a weird like it's it's language that you would use, I feel like, if you were talking to like your right hand man, you know? Absolutely. And so it's sort of like she's like this using this language, kind of like establishing her as like she thinks of herself as kind of his like ace up the sleeve. Oh, um, completely. The other thing this reminds me of, and I know this this is actually my only point of reference with this play is The Lion in Winter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. Because these are the same characters in The Lion in Winter, and that she is she is the real puppet master behind this um, this group of kings. And I don't. John strikes me as someone who like actually is pretty acquiescent to his mother, who's who's who like has watched her from a long time with his father, and says like. Yeah, she she probably knows what's right. I'll I'll go along with her, um, but might this you know dramatically this might be the first time he's broken from her, mm. and said I'm going to be my own king, and and I, it, like they have a disagreement here, and then later when Essex comes in, I think it's interesting that he that he just turns to her and goes like, my last thought is we'll pay for it somehow, like we'll find a way to pay for it. Yeah, we'll tax the church. Or, yeah, you know, the church will do it. Sack the church. Sack the church. Um, <laughs> there, there's an interesting, um, I just wanted to, to add that Eleanor was, was such a strong, I mean, talk about civil war within a family. I mean, she rebelled against her own husband. Um, her sons rebelled against her uh, at, at certain points of their life. In fact, she, she proved so powerful and troublesome that I believe um, Henry had her imprisoned for... <laughs> like over a decade during his reign because she was just like a little bit too feisty. And I, I did want to add that I, I had the privilege of, of visiting Dover uh, at one point and going to the castle where she was imprisoned. And it was pretty epic because it's right on the chalky cliffs of, of Dover, you know, overlooking the sea. And I was like, oh, I can just imagine her in here like plotting out a take over the entire kingdom. It was pretty amazing. Um, but yeah, I think, I think this is a relationship we are definitely going to uh, want to watch. And I just also wanted to add that this is one of the few plays where there are three mothers in this play. Um, that's a lot of mothers. Uh, there's, there's a play with three daughters, but uh, a play with three mothers is, is, is quite rare. And the relationship between mothers and sons is a huge theme. In, in this play that we will see uh, another iteration of later in this act. Okay, wonderful. Let's let's uh, have Essex slash slash sheriff enter and give give us the, the our next line here. <laughs> My liege, here is the strangest controversy. Uh, come from the country to be judged by you. That air I heard. Shall I produce the men? Let them approach. Our abbeys and our priories shall pay this expedition's charge. What men are you? Your faithful subject, I, a gentleman, born in Northamptonshire and eldest son, as I suppose, to Robert Falconbridge, a soldier by the honor-giving hand of Coeur de Lyon knighted in the field. Oh, what art thou? The son and heir to that same Falconbridge. 
Is that the elder and art thou the heir? <laughs> you came not of one mother then, it seems. Most certain of one mother, mighty king. That is well known, and as I think, one father. But for the certain knowledge of that truth, I put you o'er to heaven and to my mother. Of that I doubt, as all men's children may. Out on thee, rude man! Thou dost shame thy mother and wound her honor with this diffidence. I, madam, no, I have no reason for it. That is my brother's plea and none of mine. The which, if he can prove, a pops me out, at least from fair five hundred pound a year. Heaven guard my mother's honor and my land. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm going to just pause right there because I just think, like, what an entrance of a character, right? It just, like, comes in and is like, well, I think this guy's my father. Not quite sure. He wants my land, but... And also, I think that line, heaven guard my mother's honor in my land, could be, like, the thesis of this play. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> like, it's like... Yes, Meg. <laughs> and I also think it's interesting we start the shaming of the mother. Oh, shaming completely. Of the mother. And so whatever else comes on after this, um, that's an important factor because the women do get the shame, you know. Always. <laughs> <laughs> Always. And in fact, I, all three mothers will be accused of being, uh, by somebody, sometimes each other, of being false to their husbands, mm -hmm. right. uh, which is also, you know, what it is. Um, I, I think I just wanted to point out how many times the words mother and father just keep getting repeated over and over and over again. And it's like family drama, family drama. Here we go. Family drama. What do you think the bastard is sort of wanting to get out of this interaction when he comes in? Well, so many things. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think what he really wants is, at least at the moment, uh, is uh, the land that he feels he is owed, being the oldest son of uh, this guy, Robert Falconbridge. Um, I think uh, he's very cognizant of this being a new space for him. So I think the show, the the show is starting from moment one. <laughs> Certainly, whether or not the show is a correct show that he's putting on yet, but he's going to yeah. figure it out. I think. Wonderful. I love that. This is the new space. That's great. I, I, I loved how, uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Julia, for doing this like double duty of playing. I've, I'm giving you like a million parts and you're doing a beautiful job. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, and and I, I was also really enjoying how much amusement you were getting, uh, Patrick, as King John from this. I, there's something about this guy that everyone kind of reacts to you either you either love him which most people do or if you're like the one guy austria will see in act two who's like who is this guy why does he keep talking to me um and then you know he'll he'll you'll just cut his head off to just quiet him down <laughs> but um I, I i think there's there's something so it's like a different energy just enters the room and it's very wry, and there's there's this wonderful kind of edge to it that's so different from from the first kind of earnestness of like war, land, rar. This this like kind of begins poking those holes into into the the legitimacy, as it were, of these of all of these claims, um, and how flimsy they all are. Um, wonderful. Okay, 
Sorry, uh, Patrick, take it away. <laughs> Good blunt fellow. Why, being younger born, doth he lay claim to thine inheritance? I know not why, except to get the land. Once he slandered me with bastardy. But where I be as true begot or no, that still I lay upon my mother's head. But that I am as well begot, my liege. Fair fall the bones that took the pains for me. Compare our faces, and be judge yourself. If old Sir Robert did beget us both, and were our father, and this, and this son like him, Oh, old Sir Robert, father on my knee, I give heaven thanks I was not like to thee. <laughs> what a madcap hath heaven lent us here! He hath a trick of Cœur de Lyon's face. The accent of his tongue affecteth him. Do you not read some tokens of my son in the large composition of this man? Mine eye hath well examined his parts and finds him perfect, Richard. Sirrah, speak. What doth move you to claim your brother's land? Because he hath a half face like my father. With half that face would he have all my land. A half-faced growth, 500 pound a year? Wonderful. Uh, I just want to just beep here for a second, because here begins what I have just realized, having just been doing some, some work on all these history plays. I did not realize how many freaking coin jokes Shakespeare puts into his plays. There are so many jokes about coins that I just was not really aware. So this whole thing, he has a half face like my father. Half face meant profile. So he has a profile. He looks like my father. But also a half-faced groat would be a coin that shows the profile of a monarch, right? So there's all of this like what is real currency? What is what is genuine? Um, there's It's just kind of insane. And then there's a particularly uh, antique coin reference coming up that the bastard has that I had to do a lot of searching to figure out what the heck it was about. But yeah, did, did, were there any other moments that were a little, um, that there was like, what, what, what's going on there? It's pretty straightforward, which is, which is nice. We're going to get into some dicier stuff a little bit later. Oh, I'm so, no, I'm so, I'm so oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, after you. <laughs> well, I was, I was just going to say that it's, it's odd to see in the very first scene of a play um, the plot just starts. Like yeah. there's no, there's no preamble. Um, it, it reminds me a bit of Richard the Third, where it's, it's just like, here's the plot and we're off. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. It's not like um, uh, Lear, for example, mm -hmm. where like two, like three people come in and they're like, well, I thought this was happening and sort of give you a tiny little preamble before everyone enters and then it all goes down. <laughs> But it is, it is really like wham, bam, hello, here we are. This, this um, was one of his later, this is one of his last plays, right? This one? Yeah, or was this um, early on? This was actually earlier. This was, uh, I oh, think it I was, there's a lot of different thoughts about, it, it's one of the plays that's not quite pinned down in terms of when it was written. From what I understand, it was potentially uh, a written around like between like 1594 and 1596, um, which is also around the time that the second tetralogy was being uh, written. So probably this was written before the Henry plays, but possibly around the same time as Richard II, if not after. Yeah, I just thought that maybe he was like, people know this kind of a play. I'm yeah. just going to get right into <laughs> it. <laughs> That's they a know really the drill. good point. But well, if they hadn't seen it before, then... 
he had written a lot of history plays. I mean, he had already right. written the, you know, the, the, I guess, the yeah, Henry play. six part one, two, and three. And then, um, uh, let's see, uh, Richard the third would have already been written and they were incredibly popular plays as well. Um, that were performed over and over and again. But yeah, I think after this, he writes Merchant of Venice next. Ooh. Um, so about kind of like revenge-esque. Yeah. Wonderful. And also about othering, <laughs> uh, which, which I think Shakespeare is, the more I, I delve into Shakespeare, the more I, I try and find, so who is othered in, in each of the plays and, and, what, is, and what is each of the characters' trajectory? And I think, as we'll see, I think the bastard is just one of the most sort of fascinating examples of, of othering, of both being able to completely get to the inside and the seat of power, but also always kind of being a part and having a different perspective than the people who were always at the seat of power. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that the King John says, you know, the madcap, what heaven has lent us here. So heaven has sent this bastard. Yeah. And you know, so there's like planetary elements here that, that and Madcap is like, oh wow, so this is a, a strange element that's come in the mix. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And we're gonna see a whole bunch of stuff about, I think it might be the first reference that we have to, to sort of madness in the play. Like the madcap, the sort of lunatic has arrived and uh, we're gonna see a lot more lunatics arrive, which is <laughs> always fun. Um, just since yeah, you, yeah. you mentioned it's, King Lear as well, it seems it's like hard not to think about his other big bastard, you know, and yeah. Edmund, especially Absolutely. considering some of these, some of these lines almost feel like they uh, prefigure some of the lines Edmund says in that later play. Oh, uh, and I think what I'm, what I'm sort of like really interested or like fascinated with is how, if he's writing this earlier, like how is it different as well? You know, how's this character? I, I almost detect like an other, otherization of both of these guys and the ability to inject something new into a situation, like mercurially, like you were saying. Yeah. Um, but Edmund seems to use that to a much more nefarious purpose and this this bastard i mean we'll see but it, it seems to be doing something a little more off the cuff i don't know you know absolutely yeah. there are sort of uh, character shadows i think within within a lot of shakespeare plays i, I was just recently reading because I'm, I'm working on a book project um thinking shakespeare the very edelstein book about sort of analyzing shakespeare's text um and he had this wonderful thing, sort of, you get to the end, it's like a 460 page book about <laughs> analyzing Shakespeare's text. And uh, I agreed with almost everything he said. There were a couple where I was like, I don't know about that. I don't think that's a rule. I think you can break that. But uh, I really liked the way that it was, it was all laid out. But he did say something at the end, which was that by knowing more of the canon, it sort of enhances your knowledge of you know, other plays like Pericles gives you a really interesting take on Cymbeline and like Othello is a fascinating, if you examine Othello and the Winter's Tale at the same time, there are these resonances that happen all within the canon. And I think you're absolutely right, Sam. There is, there is a prototype of the kind of, he's not quite a malcontent, uh, the bastard. He's a little bit too, uh, he's too fun, but, but there is this definitely like 
this person speaks differently. This person has a different sense of humor. And, um, and this person sees the world in a different way, which is reflected in the way that he speaks. Um, and, 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 I, and I quite, I, I quite love that. So I'm, I'm excited to see where that will lead us next. <laughs> and I also love how they just declared, like they just looked at him and they're like, oh yeah, he's totally curdly on. <laughs> <laughs> We don't need a DNA test. Look at him. It's, it's also, it's so funny when you were saying this earlier about how we just like, this play begins with us just sort of getting punched in the face by yeah. the, by the plot. It's so interesting that it's just sort of like, it begins with like the promise of war and like a battle of, of um, like uh, this, uh, who, who is the rightful King. And then like a second later, like, the the clown comes in it's just such a weird whiplash of sort of like i feel like if i were john i would be a little bit disconcerted and like not be just taking in random guys off the street to like deal with their like uh their personal squabbles it's just such a strange intrusion oh it's wonderful and and again it 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 totally sort of um is a is a beautiful uh a double of what we've just seen, right? Who is the legitimate claim to this land? As, yeah. as we just saw, who is the legitimate claim to all of these territories? Now we have, who is the legitimate to the, to the Falconbridge land? You know, it wonderful. feels like it's like a very, it feels like, a, obviously it's intentional, but it feels like a very intentional way of like wanting to set the tone for, this isn't a, a play in which we need to be concerned about like dangerous battles to come. Like this is a play in which we are going to be like shown sort of like reflections of different people and they're all kind of ridiculous. Yes. My gracious liege, when that my father lived, your brother did employ my father much. Well, sir, by this you cannot get my land. Your tale must be how he employed my mother. And once dispatched him in an embassy to Germany, there with the emperor to treat of high affairs touching that time. The advantage of his absence took the king, and in the meantime sojourned at my father's, where how he did prevail, I shame to speak. But truth is truth, large lengths of seas and shores between my father and my mother lay, as I have heard my father speak himself, when this same lusty gentleman was got. Upon his deathbed, by will bequeathed his lands to me, and took it on his death, that this my mother's son was none of his. And if he were, he came into the world full fourteen weeks before the course of time. Then, good my liege, let me have what is mine, my father's land, as was my father's will. Sirrah, your brother is legitimate. Your father's wife did after wedlock bear him, and if she did play false, and if she did play false, the fault was hers. Which fault lies at the hazards of all husbands that marry wives? Tell me, how if my brother, who, as you say, took pains to get this son, had of your father claimed this son for his? In sooth, good friend, your father might have kept this calf bred from his cow from all the world. In sooth, he might. Then, if he were my brother's, my brother might not claim him, nor your father, being none of his, refuse him. This concludes. My mother's son did get your father's heir. Your father's heir must have your father's land. Shall then my father's will be of no force to dispossess that child which is not his? Of no more force to dis dispossess me, sir, than was his will to get me, as I think. Whether hadst thou rather be a falcon bridge, and like thy brother to enjoy thy land, or the reputed 
let, let's actually just pause there. And is everyone good with the, what we've just gone through? The, the King John speech is a little bit of a, oof, it's kind of a, a mouthful there. But um, I, I, I definitely got the sense of what you're, I, I love the calf bred from this cow. It's like, what, what is that about? It's such a weird way to talk about humans. It is, it is, it is weird. Well, it's like, she cheated on him. That's her fault. And that's your dad's problem. Sorry. (laughs) And Um, like husbands, I don't know husbands that don't marry wives too. It's like such a strange (laughs) construction, right? I'm, I'm a little curious about the line. There's a line towards the end that it's like, there's a lot of double negatives. If you were my brothers, my brother would not claim him nor your father refuse him. So yeah. it's like, okay, so where, I, I, linguistically, I'm like, so where does that leave? Yes. <laughs> so what? what is he? Yeah. So I think, so if we call your brother Richard, um, then if, if Richard, Richard wouldn't claim Philip. Right. And. Nor would Robert. Robert. Sir Robert refuse Would Philip. not refuse him. So, and, and Robert did claim him. Right, because he could have disinherited Philip when he was much younger, right. but he's kept him in his household and sort of raised him as his son for a very, yeah. a very long time. In, so, in any case, I think yeah. I think actually John has a has a thing where he gets lost on his own words and he says, "Yeah, that, 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 nor whatever." This concludes. Here's <laughs> the, he, the the bottom line is this. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's sort of like if you try and do the one, two, three conclusion here, you're like, let's just skip to the conclusion. Just, just what, get, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are we saying? Um, I also think that it's interesting. That it, gambling uh, language will also find its way into many of these plays. And um, the fault lies on the hazards here is like literally the, the gambling chance of getting married. So there's a lot of really interesting uh, repeated imagery about, again, about coins, about gambling, about chance and, and fortune, as we, will, as we will see a lot over and over again. <laughs> I, I love the way also, uh, Olivia, that you sort of, that, that Philip apes the language that he has come before. Like he's always repeating words and using them in a different way each time he, he speaks. Absolutely. And, and I really do feel like that. I was reading something earlier today that described him as earthy, which I had never, which isn't mercurial, obviously. Those feel very different. But the way he kind of apes the language with people, especially in this first act that we're doing, feels very, um, it feels earthy to me in the sense that he's very like, I don't understand, like, I don't understand what the problem is. I was raised in this house as this person's (laughs) son. People sleep with each other. People have kids. In in a very, and I, and I think, and again, he's trying to play that argument so strongly as to, I think maybe charm maybe not bewilder so much as just kind of like people be you know i think he's hoping people are like oh my god he's taking our words and using them in an earthier way against us that's so charming yeah <laughs> and i'm like okay sure it's so charming so, when people point out the flaws in the world <laughs> you know? yeah it totally is though you know that's another thing it's like all of shakespeare's most attractive characters it's like what we respond to is the way that they think you know, that's the way that they, that they think and the way that they talk becomes very attractive to us. And I, I think that to me is like what explains, um, you know, like 
the Lady Anne scene in Richard III, there's something so beguiling and charming and sexy about the way that Richard III speaks. Absolutely. Um, you know, and 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 um, and that is that is something I've, I've been thinking a lot about lately. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, let us, um, Queen Eleanor, my dear, just because we lost you there for a second, can we go back to your Whether Hadst Thou Be? Whether Hadst Thou Rather Be, a falcon bridge and like thy brother to enjoy thy land, or the reputed son of Cor de Lyon, lord of thy presence and no land beside? Madam, and if my brother had my shape, and I had his, Sir Robert's his like him, and if my legs were two such riding rods, my arm such eel-skin stuffed, my face so thin, that in mine ear I durst not stick a rose, lest men should say, look where three farthings goes, and to his shape were heir to all this land, what I might never stir from off this place. I would give it every foot to have this face. It would not be Sir Nob in any case. Wonderful. Let us pause there, because here is this ridiculous, crazy image that I was, this is a coin image again. So this whole thing about my face so thin, I also just want to point out something that uh, Robin Williams, who is our, um, not the late great Robin Williams, but our current great Robin Williams at the ISC, who is uh, the president of our board and a wonderful Shakespeare scholar, has pointed out how many times Shakespeare has insults to skinny people. Like he just has this like hatred of skinny people that he, that, like they get insulted constantly and it's really funny. Um, so this whole thing, my face so thin that in my ear, I durst not s stick a rose, lest men should say, look where th three farthings go. So I looked this up because nobody had any notes on it that I could find. And I'm also without my Shakespeare library right now. And this is a coin joke, another coin joke of a coin that was only minted between 1561 and 1582 during Queen Elizabeth's time that had a picture of Queen Elizabeth, her profile, and a rose behind her head. It was worth three quarters of a penny, three farthings. And, um, and it was inscribed with EDG Rosa Sine Spina, which Elizabeth, by the grace of God, arose without a thorn. So this is where this very strange archaic joke is coming in about a not frequently minted coin that he says, he's saying essentially, I should, I would be afraid if I looked like Robert did, I would be afraid to put a rose behind my ear because I, I wouldn't want people being like, oh my God, look, there goes three quarters of a penny because he's so thin. It's, it's a bit of a roundabout joke um, that I, yeah, I don't know whether or not that, that, that would be on the chopping block if I were directing this show. <laughs> Cause it's, I mean, oh boy, it's, it's a lot. Yes, Meg. <laughs> so is that, is, so is Shakespeare saying, or is the, the bastard saying, the, the three farthings is just such a tiny thing, I would be worthless. Yes. In, it, yes, he's both making fun of uh, how skinny uh, Robert is and also um, that he, he isn't worth anything. He doesn't have any inheritance or land at this point. And Sir Nob was a, uh, Nob was a familiar form of Robert, just like Ned was of, of mm -hmm. Edward. So, but also knob meaning like very skinny as well. So there's all this wonderful uh, wordplay around here. 
eel skin stuffed. I mean, dude, so funny. Okay, <laughs> let's continue. I like thee well. Wilt thou forsake thy fortune, bequeath thy land to him, and follow me? I am a soldier and now bound to France. Brother, take you my land, I'll take my chance. Your face hath got 500 pound a year, yet sell your face for five pence, and tis dear. Madam, I'll follow you into the death. Nay, what I would have you go before me thither. Our country manners give our betters way. What is thy name? Philip, my liege, so is my name begun. Philip, good old Sir Robert's wife, eldest son. From henceforth bear his name, whose form thou bearest. Kneel, down, kneel thou down, Philip, but rise more great. Arise, Sir Richard, and Plantagenet. Brother, by the mother's side, give me your hand. My father gave me honor, yours gave land. Now blessed be the hour, by night or day, when I was got, Sir Robert was away. The very spirit of Plantagenet. I am thy grandam, Richard, call me so. Madam, by chance, but not by truth, what, no? Something about a little from the right, in at the window, or else o'er the hatch, who dares not stir by day must walk by night. And have is have, however men do catch, near or far off, well one is still well shot, and I am I, howe'er I was begot. Go, Falconbridge, now hast thou thy... Yep. Point, sorry, pause right there. Did, was everyone clear with that last speech? Because this was one that I, I uh, actually, this, this kind of whole page was one where I, I wrote to Robin, who's our dramaturg, and I was like, oh my God, please help me. Like, I'm, I, I, I'm struggling here. Is everyone kind of clear with this? Why don't you go over it to, to make sure <laughs> yeah. we're clear? Okay. <laughs> um, so, Madam, by chance, here we have that gambling uh the fortune the gambling um so he's saying i guess i am your grandson by chance but not honorably but who cares right so that first line essentially is like so i'm i i guess i am but not honorably but who cares because i am who i am i am but who i am something about the little from the right i think this is talking about his being begot this is uh like I was begot indirectly, not in the right way, um, in at the window or else, or the hatch, which is this, you know, a backwards way of getting, uh, Robin pointed out, this is very, very similar to in the winter's tale, uh, some stair work, some trunk work, some behind door work, all of the, this things that the shepherd is saying when he finds the baby, Perdita. Uh, who dares not stir by day must walk by night. So it's a thief or a dishonest person essentially having to, uh, it was begot in the dark. And, um, and my possession of this sort of royalness is, uh, might not be noble, but it doesn't matter because now I'm a part of the royal family. And he hit the archery target <laughs> with a very sexual connotation here. Well, one is still well shot. Um, and, and you are you, I am I, this uh, wonderful thing that we'll hear repeated by, by many people as we go through the, the canon of uh, I am not what I am, I am what I am. It's going to be a, a repeated uh, a phrase that we're going to come across. Anyway, that was, uh, I'm, I'm sure all of you totally got that. <laughs> I just wanted to like 
break it down for myself to make sure that I understood it because I no, that really was, struggled. That was great. With that thank one. you. That was <laughs> great. <laughs> well, thank you to Robin. That and the next bastard speech are are both her her breakdowns that she really helped me with. <laughs> Let's uh, continue on. Go, Falconbridge. Now hast thou thy desire. A landless knight makes thee a landed squire. <laughs> Come, madam, and come, Richard. We must speed for France. For France, for it is more than need. Brother, adieu. Good fortune come to thee, for thou wast God of the way of honesty. A foot of honor better than I was, but many a many foot of land the worse. Well, now can I make any Joan a lady? Good den, Sir Richard, God of mercy fellow. And if his name be George, I'll call him Peter. For new maid honor doth forget men's names. Tis too respective and too sociable for your conversion. Now your traveler, he and his toothpick at my worship's mess. And when my knightly stomach is sufficed, why then I suck my teeth and catechize my picket man of countries. My dear sir, thus leaning on my elbow I begin, I shall beseech you that is question now, and then comes answer like an absy book. Oh, sir, says answer, at your best command, at your employment, at your service, sir. No, sir, says question, I, sweet sir, at yours. And so ere answer knows what question would, saving in dialogue of compliment, and talking of the Alps and Apennines, the Pyrenean and the River Po, it draws towards supper in conclusion, so. Great, I'm gonna pause right there. Of the thing that is wow, bravo, and beautifully, beautifully read. Um, that so, this is another one of those uh tricky speeches where you've got to be like two people at once. Uh, it kind of reminds me, it's fascinating that Bronwyn brought up that Merchant of Venice was written after this because uh, I, I had uh, yeah. played Lancelot in Merchant of Venice. And the whole, like, the devil, the Jew, the, my angel, my devil. Like, it is so difficult to sort of, like, do the split personality in a, in a soliloquy speech. Um, and I thought you did a beautiful job. Um, I, I, I love the, the George Peter thing. It's just like, well, my name was Philip, like, half a second ago. And now it's Richard. So I guess I'll just do the same for the next person I, I meet. <laughs> Exactly. I'll just, if his name's George, I'll, I'll call him Peter. Um, just because you mentioned all these coin metaphors, this idea of his name changing, but I just think this theme throughout everything so far with how do you judge the value of something by looking at its face, including exactly. a coin, you know, including these coin jokes, but this guy's face and his name, what was the value of my name? You know, it's interesting. Very, Absolutely. Very interesting. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that. How, how, how can you choose value? And, and this, this speech is, is very much about the sort of hypocrisy of worshipful society, as we'll get to. Um, now, this whole bit about the traveler, apparently there was a thing during this time of, of travelers who would, this is sort of making fun of travelers. Thank you, Robin. This is all Robin. Uh, that would return from Europe and use this very newfangled toothpick to pick their teeth to show sort of how cultured and traveled they were. So there's this <laughs> wonderful, this wonderful, like the picked man, right? The to and, and, and he's saying, you know, there's this wonderful sort of implied antithesis. Um, copyright Ariana. I'm, I'm trying to copyright that, that phrase implied antithesis uh, to be the nerdiest of nerds um, that he, 
Philip, now Richard, has to suck his teeth because he doesn't have one of these newfangled toothpicks, right? So um, there's, there's that wonderful bit. And then, of course, uh, Robin pointed out to me that nightly, because now he's a knight, but what the audience will hear is nightly, as in every night. So every night my stomach is sufficed, right? As well as my nightly stomach. My dear sir, and I shall beseech you. And then we get into all of these, like, oh, these just these compliments that people, that are meaningless that people give each other. And this is the way that the, the world works. And, and yes, this wonderful question and answer and the, the ABSI book, beautifully, beautifully spoken. So that's basically an, an ABC book that, um, that children would learn to read. It was just called an ABSI. It was like a primer. And so it's, it's sort of like mimicking childhood behavior in these sort of imagined dealings with these just over-the-top courtiers. Just a, a, a little quick thing at the, at the bottom of our, our page that, of course, we know of the, the Alps. I'm assuming that they're a, a mountain range in, in sort of northern Italy. The Apennines are the mountain range that runs along the Italian peninsula. So these are all like very fashionable places to 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 know the Pyrenean, uh, the the Pyrenees range between France and Spain. So again, another thing. And then the the River Po is the longest river in in Italy, uh, or was at the time. Um, so all of these things are are very you know it's like when someone's like oh yeah I'm just I'm just back from my like fifth semester in Spain you know and you're like oh boy here we go you know like there's sort of this um all of the the airs and the, the the sort of learned behaviors um that 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 we sort of bring back with us um as tokens of the travel and then we're gonna and and the reason I, I stopped you there Olivia is because now we're gonna have this this wonderful change this wonderful turn of the speech that becomes I think much more introspective so but this is worshipful society and fits the mounting spirit like myself. For he is but a bastard to the time that doth not smack of observation. And so am I, whether I smack or no. I'm not alone in habit and device, exterior form, outward accoutrement, but from the inward motion to deliver sweet, sweet, sweet poison for the age's tooth. Which, though I will not practice to deceive, yet to avoid deceit, I mean to learn. For it shall strew the footsteps of my rising. But who comes in such haste in riding robes? What woman post is this? Hath she no husband that will take pains to blow a horn before her? Oh, me, tis my mother. Uh, how now, good lady? What brings you here to court so hastily? Where is that knave thy brother? Where is that holes in chase mine honor up and down? My brother Robert, old Sir Robert's son? Colburn the giant, that same mighty man? Is it Sir Robert's son that you, se that you seek so? Sir Robert's son? Aye, thou unreverend boy. Sir, Sir Robert's son? Why scornst thou at Sir Robert? He is Sir Robert's son, and so art thou. James Gurney, wilt thou give us leave a while? Good leave, good Philip. Philip Sparrow, James? There's toys abroad, and on I'll tell thee more. I'm gonna pause right there. Um, so, wonderful. So now we, we've got, <laughs> I love the, oh, me, tis my mother. That's just such a great moment. Who's this woman who's, oh, 
shit, it's mom. Um, I also just want to point out the, the rhythm in that line is really weird. Um, I, the way I, and you read it this way, the way I sort of saw it was like these three um, inverted I am. So three trochies right there and then a caesura and then a sort of two I, it's just all over the shop, um, which I think is fantastic. Uh, I love the, the Colbrand the Giant. That was a, a reference I needed to look up. It was apparently this medieval Danish champion giant that was killed by Sir Guy of Warwick at Winchester. And so again, there's this deep tone of irony. He's talking about his tiny, skinny brother, Robert, and calling him Colbrand the Giant. So there's the, that's the, the joke there. And this, this Sir Robert, Sir Robert, Sir Robert, again, it's the son, 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 father, father, father. Um, the, the, the repeated, incessant repetitions of, of family titles and names, so many names. And then this weird Philip Sparrow thing was another thing I had to figure out. Um, Raman gave me a much better uh, punctuation that she did, which is actually different from the folio and different from, from this, which is a modernization of the folio. But she put a question mark after Philip, so it was Philip Sparrow. And that was a period. And then James, there's toys abroad, and then I'll tell you more. So this is essentially, thank you, Robin. It's it's like questioning his use of his former name, Philip. Oh, Philip is the name of a sparrow. Um, Philip was a name for a sparrow, a common name. Uh, and sort of he's saying in, in calling him Philip, it's as good as calling him a sparrow, essentially. Like the name has no meaning anymore. And uh, from, this is from the, the Oxford English Dictionary uh, from 1612, there was a, a, a quote, let chirping Philip learn to catch a fly. So it's this, it's very, it's uh, little birds, little birds. Anyway. I just uh, wanted to hop in and say, with all these walk-on roles for Falconbridge family members, it's really making more of this feeling of a variety show or something. Oh, <laughs> like, from the stately politics to comedy, you know? Oh my gosh, that's a wonderful observation. I really think this is like, th this play in general is such a kind of walk-on part play. Like, there are a few exceptions, but most of the characters only appear in a few acts, except for John um, and Philip, Philip Richard. And everyone else kind of just is there for a time and then they disappear and you never hear about them again. And this is true for almost all the rest of the characters. So it's a really great, like, this would be a really great, like, television special where you have, like, celebrities coming in to play James Gurney or whatever, you know, because it's just, there's so many walk-on roles. It's, it's really awesome. Wonderful. <clears throat> so now we get to here. We have another mother and son alone moment. Madam, I was not old Sir Robert's son. Sir Robert might have et his part in me upon Good Friday and there broke as fast. Sir Robert could do well. Mary to confess could get me. Sir Robert could not do it. We know his handiwork. Therefore, good mother, to whom am I beholding for these limbs? Sir Robert never hoped to make this leg. Hast thou conspired with thy brother too? That for thine own gain shouldst defend mine honor? What means this scorn, thou most untoward knave? Night, night, good mother, basilisco-like. <laughs> I am dubbed. I have it on my shoulder. But, mother, I am not Sir Robert's son. I have disclaimed Sir Robert and my land. 
legitimation name and all is gone. Then, good my mother, let me know my father. Some proper man, I hope, was it, mother? Hast thou denied thyself a falcon bridge? As faithfully as I deny the devil. King Richard Coeur de Leon was thy father. By long and vehement suit I was seduced to make room for him in my husband's bed. Heaven lay not my transgression to my charge. Thou art the issue of my dear offense, which was so strongly urged past my defense. Now by this light were I to get again, Madam, I would not wish a better father. Some sins do bear their privilege on some sins do bear their privilege on earth, and so doth yours. Your fault was not your folly. Needs must you lay your heart at his dispose. Subject tribute to commanding love, against whose fury and unmatched force the aweless lion could not wage the fight, nor keep his princely heart from Richard's hand. He that perforce robs lions of their hearts may easily win a woman's. I, my mother, with all my heart, I thank thee for my father, who lives and dares but say thou didst not well. When I was got, I'll send his soul to hell. Come, lady, I will show thee to my kin, and they shall say when Richard me begot, if thou hadst said him nay, it had been sin. Who says it was, he lies. I say twas not. <laughs> Wonderful. That is so lovely. So does everyone know that the sort of Coeur de Leon thing, which is that he was called Richard the Lionhearted, Richard the First, um, who was John's older brother, who the legend goes killed a lion and um, uh, the sort of got the heart of the lion and then kind of wore this lion pelt and was associated with the lion for the rest of his life. And I, I loved what you did hear of, it. I feel like the bastard is comforting his mother in this last speech. He's like, it's okay, mom. I'm actually really <laughs> pleased that you were unfaithful because I like, I'm, I'm really into the, the idea that this king was my father way more than that, oh, Sir Robert. You know, like there's something really sweet about that moment um, that, that's very, uh, it's, 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 it's just comforting. Um, I wanted to point out another very strange, uh, the Basilisco-like. Basilisco was apparently this knight character in a very popular contemporary play um, called Solomon and Persidea, in, in case anyone's interested. <laughs> um, we're we're going to have our own uh, editions of Shakespeare plays where you can read all about it. No, not really. But yes, so again, we have this uh, this wonderful... Land claim, family claim, land claim, family claim. How do they connect? How are they dissolved? Um, and they seem, it seems to be quite a fluid uh, relationship. I love, Meg, how, how much it, it's, it was such a toll on you to say that you had had this affair. That was so lovely. Because um, again, it's it, uh, the woman's honor, as you, as you were talking about before, is, it's like the only possession that they consistently have and always seem to lose. Um, in these plays. And, and also that, you know, uh, Philip dash Richard, you know, he thanks his mother, which is rare that any son would thank his mother anything, but <laughs> he sort of says, don't worry, mom. You know, it's like, you know, he had the, he robbed the lions of their hearts. You, how could you resist? There, there, yeah. It wasn't, you had nothing to do. I mean, you know, yeah. so 
it's, it's it is a very yeah. sweet uh, it, it's a very sweet relation with the mother. Yeah, absolutely. And I I was actually a while ago I was watching the the Stratford Ontario production of of King John that they uh, recorded back in 2015, and I, I had seen a lot of those actors, but not in that role before. And and there was this really funny moment where when she did the King Richard Coeur d'Alene, was my yeah. father, the the guy playing, I was just about to say Edmund, the bastard was behind her and was like, yes, it was just, it was hilarious. It was just like the whole first scene was just this, a whole bunch of, cause it's just, it's so different. These three parts are just like, one's a farce and then we get this wonderful kind of family drama and then we have this empire question at the beginning so it really is kind of it, it is one scene but it's really kind of three scenes in, in, in is squished into one which we will see a lot in in act two and three as well um are there any sort of thoughts that anyone has uh, now that we've we've sort of gotten through through act one any observations or questions I had a quick question, and I could probably Wikipedia or Google this really fast, but is this the same John and Richard from the Robin Hood stories? Who yes. Like, right. Yes. Right. I so was saying. Interesting context. Prince John from Robin Hood, you know, the one with the fox. <laughs> right. <laughs> Prince John with the little lion ears that were always getting squished by the crown. Oh. It's that John. Yes. <laughs> I can't help thinking of it as that, John. <laughs> Prince John who sucks his thumb, the same. <laughs> it seems no. kind of similar, like kind of similar uh, portrayal. Yeah, that was actually when I, I did a, a History Plays workshop with uh, a bunch of the wonderful kids in um, Santa Fe. That was actually how I, how I introduced it. I'm like, okay, who's seen Robin Hood? <laughs> Everyone's like, oh. It's like, you know, the little lion with the little ears, that's John. And they're all like, that's John. It was, it was, it was very cute. Yeah. It's, it's the same one. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm oh, nursing no, or doctoring, if you will, or whatever, a, a nice bottle of Cabernet as I'm listening to this wonderful reading, <laughs> enjoying the hell out of it. I just wanted to point out a couple of things that struck me, which is, and when I was looking at Richard II, the same idea, which is how early on, these early plays, there's so many couplets. And this doesn't appear in the later plays where he goes into genuine blank verse. It's unrhymed. Uh, but here, the, over and over again, you see these couplets occur and other sort of uh, self-conscious poetic device that I find fascinating. Yeah. And I also thought that the idea of the bastard it, it was alluded to before by someone there and yourself also being a sort of avatar of the later um, Edmund and so on. But these characters like the fool and Lear sort of stand outside the circle of power and can almost say anything they want. They have this sort of privilege outside. They, they derive their, their center, not from what society tells them, but from their own. It's almost a Nietzschean like created uh, morality that they have themselves. And I just thought I'd throw that in because I need another sip of wine. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. That's wonderful. I, I, I totally agree. I think uh, thinking of, of the bastard as kind of the, the fool is, is, a, is a really interesting, you know, uh, he's one of the few people in this play that can speak truth to power, like the, the fools in Lear and, um, and Fessy to a certain extent. Um, 
Absolutely. And then the, the end, I think it's, it's interesting. We sort of end this act as you were talking about rhyming schemes with, we've got this interesting quatrain. He doesn't end with a rhyming couplet. It's like a rhyming quatrain. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he has the, I'll send his soul, you know, not well, I'll send his soul to hell. So he does get a rhyming couplet in there, but then it's followed by this, this, this quatrain. A-B-A-B kind yes, of exactly. So thank you so much for pointing that out. Um, are there are there any other observations before we sort of go into our our recording? Um, I was just thinking that so you know the bastard of the fool they have the bastard has access to power access to seeing everything, <clears throat> but no power. So that's you know that's the observation uh, position there. Um, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I. I I was just also thinking, you know, he really diverges from Edmund and King Lear when he gives up. He doesn't, he doesn't care about his claim anymore when they offer him to lose his identity and become something else, you know. Absolutely. I mean, that's what he wants, right? Uh, legitimate Edgar, I must have your land, right? So he wants the land and this bastard's like, I'd rather have the title, actually. <laughs> Olivia, you had, you had something as well. Oh, all on that note, I was just going to say, it's fascinating just to think how big a gamble it is, though, even then, to take the chance to be like, I'll take the name. Yes. So then, the, so then, like, the confirmation from mom is like, uh, uh, it yes. seems impossible <laughs> that he, again, with the, all the gambling talk and the talk of chance, that it pays off so big for him right at the beginning but it really does. So like, yeah. what, what a tremendous gamble to have, to have payoff. And I absolutely, that is a wonderful point. I, yeah. I think also I like, and I know that this is going to come up so much later in our discussion of the play, but just like from the beginning, we've already been talking about how it's like a, already weirdly a play about mothers and sons, but also this idea of like, legitimacy is passed through the father but the only one who can confirm it is the mother and like the weird power of like how that just immediately is just sort of like well we can't really trust oh no we just lost you there for a second oh no my it keep my it keeps popping up and saying your internet is unstable (laughs) and uh i don't want to do about that but but about the yes that's that's a wonderful point it's such a like fun like and also horrible like it, it it feels like he's aware of it, but also like you know the 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 like inherent misogyny of it is funny, yes, <laughs> you know. Indeed, indeed, I totally agree. And actually, you just saying your your internet is unstable um, reminds me of one of my favorite uh, things about this play that I was noticing is how many times people use words that begin with un and how important they tend to be in Shakespeare. Untoward knave. Um, Let's see, what's mm-hmm. an unmatched force? Like we've got a lot of these words and, and there's a wonderful line. I, I always quote this line from uh, The History Boys, the play by Alan Bennett. Um, has this wonderful thing about these words that begin with un, which give a sense of being left out of, being excluded from whatever the thing is. Unloved, unkissed, unseen. There's, there's, um, there's a lot of these unkinged in Richard II, one of my favorite um, made up verbs. Uh, there is something very much about rejection in, in, in those words that I, I really, um, very much respond to. I always like circle them and like to bring those out. 
well, I wonderful. Say it also. It it just stood out to me a little bit, and I can't resist saying it. But like um, that, from a modern ear, when the mother, when the bastard's mother was like, "Well, I protested and I protested and I protested," and he still, you know, he didn't take no for an answer, and you know, passed my best defenses, did it anyway. From a modern ear, there's something, you know, the misogyny inherent in that oh scenario God. as well. It was is a little bit jarring. Yeah, and, and I think you know the lens is very different from the 21st century, but you know, it's like yeah, inherent to the world. It's like he was a king; he just got it. You know, he got yeah. what he wanted anyway. But there, I felt as much as it's a jokey part of the play. There's a little bit of friction in that, or something. You know, a little bit of I something well, dark in there. You know, thank you for bringing that up too. I think there again, this is from the the Thinking Shakespeare book. There's this wonderful phrase that is apparently from Joe Papp, who is the, the founder of the public theater, that he was talking about the key to all of the uh, Shakespeare comedies is thinking about them as Irish coffee. And I was like, what? <laughs> but I, I love this. I lo I've become completely obsessed with this idea. Um, he said in, in, in all of the comedies and in all the comedic moments in Shakespeare, you're in the light frothy part, but there's always something deep and murky going on beneath the lightest moments. And similarly, in the murky moments, there's always lightness to be found as well. So I think, I think that's, that's wonderful that there's, there's, there's these, this duality of, um, of both this sort of, ha ha, mom was false, but also she basically says it was not consensual, this, um, he, he got what he wanted. Um, and, and there, there is, there is the, the whiskey and the very strong coffee underneath this sort of frothy sweet cream on top of, uh, on top of this act as well. Um, thank and, you for, yeah. And also, so that whole business, uh, you know, this was a transgression. Um, and so the defense was, again, it's a, a reference to her husband and that, uh, you know, the offense was also to that patriarchal lineage thing, that that was disrupted. Absolutely. And, and, so, and so that's another little layer within that. So, because she calls it my dear offense. Yeah. So that was, you know, even though it's dear to her, she is, her son is dear to her, but it, his presence is an offense to that lineage. And as we will see in the next two acts as well, this is still a very Catholic time where the church dominated um, intellectually and philosophically the land. And so my dear offense is really kind of about, about sin. She's carrying this sin with her and has been right. repenting for it, right? For, for, her whole, for her whole life. It's a very different way of thinking about um, illegitimacy.